Again, everyone, uh, this is Rob Danish from the University of Waterloo, and you're listening to Now We're Talking, a podcast about communication skills. And this is episode 30. And as with the last few episodes, I'm joined um, with these by some of my students who are working on a whole bunch of different communication practices this year. And uh, today I've got Julie with me, and she's going to talk about ineffective small group communication practices. So, hi, Julie, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Good. So, what do you want to talk about today? So I will be talking about ineffective small group communication practices. So this happens when an individual team member privileges individuation over cooperation. So a few episodes ago, Laura and Rob talked about team advantage and how using all the strengths of the different people on the team almost always, if not always, makes better decisions and have better outcomes than individuals. Well, these ineffective communication practices focuses on individuation over cooperation, and with that, it hinders the decision-making process as well as team cohesion and assumes that their individual opinions will, will be better than the groups. So there are five practices or things to look out for. One is fetish of assertion. Two, the propensity for ambiguity. Three, the lover of the non sequitur. Four, the defensive arguer. And five, the procedural objector. So these are all ways that people privilege or prioritize themselves or look to stand out from or distinguish themselves from the other members of the group. So I think that's what individuation means instead of cooperation. So when people are trying to make it clear that they're different from or stand out over against other members of some group. When everyone, when people are trying to incorporate themselves with one another, they're practicing some degree of cooperation. When they're practicing individuation, they're separating themselves out. So do you want to tell us what those five things are like and maybe give us some examples of them? Yeah, of course. So the first practice is the fetish of assertion. So this is when the individual advances their own agenda, makes sure, makes sure that their own opinion is heard above all others, forces the adoption of op- opinions before proper deliberation of the group. So this individual usually assumes this role when wanting or needing some sort of confirmation from the team because of an insecurity with their own identity um, and th- or they are struggling or seeking their own identity. For an example, a parent, usually the father, enforces the rules or opinions over everyone else's. It's his way or the highway. He shuts down any sorts of discussion and makes a final decision without any sorts of deliberation from the rest of the family. The individual is usually a poor listener and just pushes for her own or his own opinion or agenda over everyone else's. So this is, um, if you've ever been in a group, you've probably been with someone who practiced this kind of thing. Uh, But inevitably, what happens in any sort of group is that one person thinks the most important voice is their own and they need to assert their own voice and they assume that they know exactly what it is that the group needs to do or the team needs to do, and they push for that and only that. This is what we mean by the fetish of assertion. So if I asked you to imagine someone who just insists on giving their opinion wherever and whenever anything is happening, uh, that's the person we're thinking about. So the second um, ineffective small group communication practice is a propensity for ambiguity. 
So this is when an individual thinks that their own views and explanation of opinions are clear and flawless, despite the audience's confusion. So because of this, this, this individual blames the audience for not understanding, which usually results in, which is a result of the individuation mindset of, not, of only seeing the situation from one view without considering the effects of their words on others. So an example of this would be when a coach on a sports team expect, expects players to grasp a play or a technique to be used in a game, but the team is not performing to their liking or is confused on how to do it. The coach, instead of patiently explaining or walking through the techniques with the players, becomes impatient, starts getting frustrated. It does not take ownership for the confusion of the players because they think that their explanation is enough and that their way of explaining is enough and it is the player's faults and the player's own um, misunderstanding that is impeding on the group. So uh, I like to think, uh, or at least in communication studies, we often think about it, the difference between what's said and what's heard. And most communication studies scholars or practitioners, or if you're a communication consultant, you know that there's a big difference between what's said and what's heard. And the thing that's said is not always necessarily the thing that's heard. So someone who has a propensity for ambiguity uh, is focused on what's being said without focusing on what's being heard or misunderstands or assumes that whatever they've said is sufficient to be heard in the way that they intended it to be heard, when in reality that almost never happens. So someone that is able to avoid the propensity for ambiguity understands that what gets heard is really what's most important and crafts a message so, so that it can be heard in the best way possible. Um, those kinds of messages often avoid ambiguity and the kind of messages that don't avoid ambiguity are, are from the kinds of people that don't realize that people can hear things or take things differently than they were intended. And moving on to the third ineffective practice is the lover of the non sequitur. So this individual would introduce unrelated information to impress the group of their own intellect or special knowledge that they have. So again, the goal is to stand out from the group. They seek uh, they do not seek to contribute to benefit to the, to the decision-making process primarily. They primarily want to seek to stand up from the group. So, for example, I work on a committee that is trying to host an informative event on campus to fight Islamophobia. When brainstorming ideas, uh, we found that there was one person who found the need to justify their opinion by going on different tangents on a specific topic that ended up taking at least five minutes and was not productive for the decision-making process at hand. So what ended up happening was that instead of taking those five minutes to make good decisions and to discuss those decisions, this group member was taking up the five minutes of their time trying to impress the group of their intellect. This also happened in the first few meetings of, um, of our group when we were just trying to get to know each other and form group cohesion. And this group member might have been trying to find the need to prove themselves to the group in order to feel in order to have the effect that they are intellectual and have special knowledge that is um, a great contribution. My favorite what well, I think that uh, one of my least favorite things as a teacher and one of the hardest hardest things to deal with as a teacher is when you have a student that likes to interrupt class and just interject something that seems to have nothing to do with what the class is about or what the topic of the conversation is. Um, these kinds of students are so frustrating to deal with 
because they've introduced a non sequitur into the conversation and you as the member of the group and the teacher is just another member of the group really have no idea how to connect or make a link between what the person has just introduced and, and the topic of conversation for the day. Um, and you don't want to just offend the person that's introduced the non sequitur, but really they've made a critical error because their judgment about what the group is working on and, and what uh, is relevant information or what's relevant, uh, what's a relevant story or what's a relevant fact or what's a relevant example is completely or, or has completely missed. Um, and those people also don't tend to care. It's almost as if in, I'm thinking of students in particular that I've had in the past that don't seem at all concerned. It's like they're unaware of the other students in the room that they may need to be getting something out of the conversation and they just go on with the kind of non sequiturs. Um, I'm sure if you've worked in an office setting before, you've seen uh, these kinds of people, bef people as well that just introduce irrelevant things and they're not paying attention to what really matters for the group. So moving on to the fourth an effective communication practice. So this is the defensive arguer. So this is when an individual tries very hard to justify their own position in an overt fashion. So this individual um, justifies and defends their own position by making no effort to understand others' points of views or consider their con or consider criticisms when their own position or opinions are criticized. So for example, I was in a group project for school and our goal is to write a script together. One group member felt strongly that the script should go a certain way, and when presented this idea, the rest of the group criticized it. This group member then became very defensive and was not considering our, our um, criticisms. And what ended up happening again was we wasted a lot of time and there was definitely a threat to the, to the team cohesion because most of the group members became very frustrated. There was a lot of infighting and the infighting by the end of it, everyone was in a very negative space and we couldn't get any work done after that as well. And the, per the individual that was very defensive um, felt attacked and that was not productive um, for the group at all. This is one of the more de delicate and difficult practices because everyone wants to feel acknowledged. People want to feel like they're a member of something bigger or larger than themselves. And, but we all, and we all have a sense of insecurity over our membership in some group. And that insecurity can be this kind of fragile thing that gets tripped off or um, suddenly when one of our ideas is not accepted or not responded to or not welcomed, etc. So it really tests, when you have someone who's very defensive, it really tests the relational harmony of the group and the ability of, um, of the group to successfully kind of socially incorporate all of the members and make everyone in the group feel secure, like they have a secure place. And that is, is a, a big challenge, um, especially in the light of, or when you have circumstances in which people can be easily kind of, um, easily switched into this defensive mode. So the fifth um, non-ineffective communication practice is the procedural objector. So this is when the individual changes the subject, the substance of the conversation to the rules or procedures from the current task or decision. Those, though these concerns may be legitimate, it should be discussed at a better time that does not impede on the decision-making process at hand or the decision or task that needs to be done at hand. 
So for example, I've seen this sometimes at general meetings where Robert's rules are used to make decisions. So Robert's rules are just a decision-making process that is agreed upon on the group and it was made um, by um, someone and they were just kind of, um, so this was just introduced for big meetings just to organize how decision-making process should happen. So those that are unfamiliar um, would complain to the group that the actual process is inefficient and tries to shift the conversation through changing the foundations of the way the meetings are run. The concerns were legitimate concerns, however, it ironically made the current decision-making process inefficient as a group that would have been discussing um, the Roberts rules when it should have been focused on the topic earlier at hand. The comments could have been saved for another time, for example, in another discussion item or at another meeting. So this supports individuation because the unfamiliar members were trying to have the meeting run to their liking without considering the current group's goal of making a decision um, in a timely manner. So this is uh, this one is is the kind of person that takes the conversation away from the substance of what's being discussed to some meta or higher level or higher order of reflection. So by changing the subject of the conversation from the substance of what needs to be decided or done or, or whatever to the way in which the thing gets done, um, you've actually made it harder to reach consensus or um, effectively kind of make a decision as, as a group. So um, procedural objectors, they are able to hijack the entire conversation and move it to a higher order level of dispute or discussion, um, which might be legitimate. There might be a lot to discuss in that higher order kind of level, but it it prevents the group from actually addressing the the substance of the issue that's that they're they're worrying on, they're worried about, or they're, that they're working on. So, just to review the five ineffective small group communication practices, the first one was the fetish of assertion. The second was a propensity for ambiguity. The third was a lover of the non sequitur. The fourth was a defensive arguer. And the fifth was the procedural objector. So an activity to avoid these five communication, ineffective communication practices is a listening activity. So the next time you find yourself in a group, try attentively listening to each person in the group's ideas before offering your own or ensure that the ratio of you listening versus talking is four to five. So if you offer an idea, wait for the rest of the group to um, offer their own ideas or keep this ratio in mind. So have four people talk before you offer your idea. So when offering your ideas, present them as a question and keep the explanations short and succinct. So when you're offering your idea as a question, you are inviting people to comment on it. You're inviting people to criticize it. So you are automatically put into the mindset that you are um, inviting people into criticizing your idea and commenting on your idea and to avoid the being a defensive arguer. So another um, thing in this activity is to um, instead of trying to justify your, your idea, to further justify it, try to build on others' ideas. So in order to build on others' ideas, you need to listen attentively to their ideas and you will then give credit to other people's ideas and try to um, have the goal 
be a group decision instead of your own individual decision that you think is best for the group. And that goes into remembering that the end goal is to make the decision that is best for the group and not to stand out from the group. So yeah, it's that last point that I think is really the most important thing and that all these specific examples work under. Uh, We have to remember that we're ego-driven animals and many, many times that means that we have an incentive to stand out or to, um, to pit ourselves over against some other or in competition with some other ego-driven animals. And what that means in group work is that we have this desire to not get along with everyone else, to stand out from everyone else, to somehow um, assert our authority or our power in the group. And when we do that, when we make those assertions in these five ways, it's actually fairly destructive for the group's progress or for the group's decision-making abilities, etc. Um, although we have this kind of instinct or desire for, for to be these egocentric, um, affirmative kind of uh, outstanding, and by that I mean, I mean great, but standing out from the crowd kinds of creatures, um, it, it mitigates against our ability to cooperate with others for effective decision making and to tap into that team advantage that we were talking about a couple of episodes ago. Um, so these five, five kinds of practices are all should make us kind of alive to the worry that we're asserting too much of our own individuality inside a group context or inside a context that would benefit from cooperation more than individuation. Uh, so any concluding remarks for us, Julie? Um, yes, like Rob said, the most ineffective small group communication practices are to privilege individuation over cooperation. And we do really have to keep in mind because um, even in school, we are taught to be to stand up from the crowd, even when working in team settings and group settings. However, that may um, impede on your success in your career as people and potential employers may see that you are not a team player and you're just looking out for your own um, self-interest. Okay. Great. Thanks, Julie. And uh, we'll be back uh, next week with another episode on small group communication with another student of mine. Thanks, everyone, for listening.